be reading Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, this morning, even as you've been speaking to us through the songs and the prayers, as your word now has been read and as it is proclaimed, we ask that you would speak your words of life right into our hearts. Use my words, Lord, or speak in spite of my words. But God, we await a word from you today. And may the words of my mouth... May the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Today begins a two-week look at God and the pandemic. Um, it, is a, it is a scary thing to, to think about bringing a word in this, and yet I believe it's a place that all of us need to spend a little bit of time really thinking through this question how life has changed right in the last six months. First, it hit China, but you know, that's so far away. And then it hit Iran, and that's still really far away. But then Italy, and London, and New York, and suddenly there was no safe place on this planet. There was no neutral zone, no equivalent of a wartime Switzerland in order to escape for a while or relax or sort of ponder what is ought to be done. So does anybody really know what's going on? Why is this happening? Is someone trying to tell us something? And what are we supposed to do about it? I loved this great start to one of my favorite scholar, N.T. Wright's new little book on God and the pandemic. And there's thanks to him for writing out a way for us to think theologically about this pandemic, to understand perhaps more about God and about our relationship with God more clearly. Back when I was in seminary, my systematic theology professor, who was Irish, when we were about to embark on some particularly dense theology, he would say, now this is going to give you a pen in the brain. (laughs) Well, pondering God's actions in our world today and, and my thoughts as I've put them together in this sermon, it may this morning give you a bit of a pain in the brain. (laughs) But I invite you to stay with me here. Let's rise up and turn our thoughts to God and to his work in the midst of this pandemic. Now, you know, back in the ancient world and honestly in many parts of the modern world, 
major disasters are routinely associated with angry gods. Something bad happened? Well, it must be because someone has it in for you. And in the old pagan world of Greece and Rome, the assumption was that you hadn't offered the right sacrifices or you hadn't said the right prayers or you did something so dreadful that even those old amoral gods on Mount Olympus decided to crack down on you. But the philosophers of those days disagreed with events happening just at the arbitrary whim of angry gods. And so they came up with some alternatives. There were the Stoics, and the Stoics said that everything is programmed to turn out the way it is, and you can't change it, so learn to fit in. It, It was a sense of being under control yourself, control yourself, And don't worry about what is happening out here. So the modern equivalent to that might be just sort of tough it out. Because if the bullet has your name on it, you know what? So be it. Another school of philosophy were the Epicureans. They said that everything is random. But also that you can't do anything about it. And so, you know, make yourself as comfortable as you can. Sort of the eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Their, their biggest uh, emphasis was on pleasure, and so you find a way to have pleasure in whatever circumstances you're in. And, and most of the modern West uh, probably ends up in this category. Things happen, but we just want to sort of settle in, make ourselves comfortable, find ways to bring ourselves pleasure, watch plenty of Netflix, this too shall pass. But meanwhile, in, in crowded urban areas, in prisons, in refugee camps, in nursing homes, in hospitals, the suffering just gets worse. And sorrow rises across the world like a pall of smoke, shaping the question that we hardly even dare ask. Why? In Old Testament time, the prophets and and the prophet Amos, in in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, he said, Surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Well, if you listen very closely, we certainly have no shortage of modern day prophets revealing the secrets as they at least see them all the way from political conspiracies to moralizing about sexual sin. In the Old Testament times, the greatest disaster of all was the Babylonian exile. And the great prophets of the time interpreted that event as large-scale punishment for Israel's sin. They went all the way back to the covenant promises and the warnings that we find in Deuteronomy when the Hebrew people were just entering into the promised land. And the Old Testament prophets made it clear Israel did what they were told not to do. They worshipped pagan idols and all the behavior that went along with that. And now they were suffering the consequences that God told them would happen. We read that in Lamentations 5, 15 to 16, 
Joy has left our heart. Our dancing has turned into lamentation. The crown has fallen off our head. We are doomed because we have sinned. And and this question throughout the Old Testament scripture seems to be that, that if that's how it worked on the large scale in exile, what about on the smaller personal scale? Is that how God works in those instances? Do bad things happen when people do bad things? Is it this straightforward causal relationship that the righteous have health and prosperity and the unrighteous have illness and poverty? That was indeed the way of thinking in those times, and it's certainly the tone of some of our psalms, that ancient hymn book of the faith. Psalm 1 um, equates those who follow the Lord's instruction with, with trees planted by streams of water and claims that whatever they do succeeds, while the wicked are like dust that the wind blows away. And then we read in Psalm 37 where it expands on that theme and then claims in verse 25, I was young and now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous left all alone, have never seen their children begging for bread. Wait, (laughs) what? Really? Because, Because I have. Don't you remember the the pictures that we've seen of the elderly that are unable to be around their children, that are dying of COVID-19 all alone? Or, Or what about those long lines for food as our economy is turned upside down and inside out? Are we saying that those are because of personal sin? You see, we, like our Jewish faith ancestors, we want to ask that question, why? Why do bad things happen? Especially why do bad things happen to good people and to God's people even who love and who serve him? Well, we can look no further even than the book of Job in the Old Testament. It was written in order to dispute that very line of thinking that the righteous will receive health and prosperity and the unrighteous will receive illness and poverty. Job, you see, was a righteous man, we're told. And yet all kinds of awful things happened to him and to his family. His friends came and sat with him, and while they kept their mouths shut, they were wonderful examples of a friend. But once they began speaking, they weighed in on this idea of sin and and said that either Job or his family must have sinned in order for all this to be happening. And God declared all of them wrong. Then he dealt with Job and and made sure that Job understood that it's really not always appropriate to ask the question, why? It's not a good question sometimes. Jesus, uh, in his time, in Matthew 5.45, said that God makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. 
Jesus repeatedly challenged that idea that sickness or disability was always this straight line to sin. And going back to the Psalms, to the Psalm that I read from earlier today in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Or in a more modern translation, if you kept track of sins, Lord, my Lord, who would stand a chance? And then Paul declares in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, And so it follows that if God punished each person as they deserved for their individual sin or even the systemic sin, friends, all would be lost for us. Following that line of thinking, instead of asking, why is this happening to me, a better question might be, why not me? (laughs) Why am I not sick? Why are we ever allowed moments of beauty and love and happiness Why are we so frequently spared from the just consequences of our actions? As any parent with a toddler who asks the incessant why questions knows, why questions are often the most unsatisfying and the most unhelpful questions. As we try and figure out where we can cast blame on someone or something, even onto God. And so if why is not the great question to ask, that, then what is it, though, that we can know about God? And what can we know about God and how he interacts with us? Well, first we know God is good. And God created a good world. I invite you to look in Genesis chapter 1. God created a good world with laws of physics. Thank God for gravity, right? And laws of biology, think cycles of life, and an order of predictable systems that work in tandem with those laws of physics and biology. Think about rain cycles. Think about the formation of storms, and yes, even the spread of viruses. So God is good. And God created humanity to be in relationship with God and with each other and to care for God's good world. And then God gave humanity free will. We are created in God's image, and that is a a way of saying we also have free agency. he He created us with free will so that we could choose love and care for other humans, and the good world that God has created. Humanity, though, broke and continues to break relationship with God and with other humans and with this good world that God created. We as Christians have a little three-letter word for that, and it's called sin. When you put that in the context of our current dealing with the coronavirus, you know, you can see this played out in the systemic issues between the haves and the have-nots, or in the willful disregarding the natural laws of disease, in profiteering, in pride, in selfishness, no one will tell me what to do, to do. 
and in so many other ways that humanity chooses self-will over community. Yes, we have free will. Further, God has, God does, and God will continue to work out God's good purposes sometimes in spite of humanity's attempts at thwarting those good purposes, and most often through willing persons who align themselves with God's good purposes. That's going to really be the topic next week. We're going to look at that more fully of how God works in the world today, generally through his willing people. And then God has shown God's nature perfectly through the life and the teachings, and the healings, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His nature is to love, and to heal, and to restore, and to be present in suffering, and to invite humanity to once again choose to live in relationship with God, and with other humans, and with the good world that God has created. And that brings me to one more word that I want to say about God and the pandemic for today. And that is that God is present when we suffer. Now, of course, God is present at all times, closer to us than the very air that we breathe. But often, we experience his nearness most when we realize we can no longer rely on ourselves. God is present in suffering. Jesus wept at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. Jesus experienced great suffering on the cross. We know from Scripture and from experience that God is near to the brokenhearted. Our suffering can be a time of great growth as well. Mental and spiritual growth can be the outcomes of suffering, Of course, so can hopelessness and despair. The scripture that Pastor Leanne shared in the children's time about how suffering eventually leads to hope, it can do that. Ask many people who have experienced great tragedy or pain in their lives, and often you will hear some version of, while I would never have chosen this path, It has shaped me into the person that I am. I'm more compassionate. I'm more able to be with others in such a time. I'm more reliant on God, and so on and on. And so, while God is not the author of suffering, God is able to redeem it. And God is working in the midst of this time of suffering, of illness, of economic pain, of fear and uncertainty, and is most especially near to those who are most vulnerable, the poor, the elderly, those in prison, those with no family or home, the widow and the orphan, the refugee. God cares for them and cares for us as tenderly as a loving parent cares for their infant. And God invites us 
into that redemptive work of caring for others as brothers and sisters in Christ. Next week, we're going to look at more closely where we see God at work. But my challenge to you for this week is to keep your eyes open and look for God. Keep your ears and your hearts open to his still, small voice calling you ever deeper into relationship with God and with others and with his good creation. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, Lord, we give you thanks that you never abandon us in our time of need. That, God, you are closer to us in the air that we breathe, and you stand ready to redeem even this great suffering the world is going through right now. Give us the eyes to see you at work. Give us the will to join with you in your work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.